Welcome everyone. Um, thank you very much for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Fraud. I am the uh, Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Uh, thrilled to have everyone back for the next installment of Your Name Shall Be Great, the Abraham Narrative with Rabbi David Silver. Uh, Rabbi Silver is the founder and dean of the Drisha Institute. Uh, we are thrilled to be learning with him. Uh, he is a nationally acclaimed lecturer on, on Tanakh, has been helming Drisha for many, many years. Um, I think many of you have been at the past few sessions. Um, so it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and thank you for being here this morning. Uh, without further ado, I think uh, Rabbi Silver, we can go ahead and get started. Okay, very good, thank you. Okay, so we're, um... We've been discussing Avraham's descent into Egypt, which is happens in chapter 12, shortly after he comes to the land. He there's a famine in the land. We're told in chapter 12, and Avraham determines to go down to Egypt. And the language of the Torah is the famine was literally heavy, severe in the land, which is verse number 10. And then he goes down to Egypt, and as we saw, he's, he was concerned that they might take his wife and kill him, and in point of fact, they do take his wife. But uh, for, as far as Avram is concerned, he's given many gifts. Uh, God intervenes on behalf of Sarah and brings plagues upon Paro and his house. That's the end of chapter 12. Paro summons Avram and angrily uh, confronts him and deports him. He allows him to keep all of his possessions. And uh, Avram leaves uh, Egypt. He's escorted out of the land. That's the end of chapter 12. In chapter 13, Avram's going, we are given a description of Avram's return to the land. He's going to come back to the very place that he left from which is near Beit El. And in chapter 13, uh, let's find that verse, it's towards the beginning. Uh, in verse number three, he returns to the place he had previously built an altar and called out in God's name. And he does precisely the same thing in the next verse uh, and Avram called out, uh, invoked the Lord by, by name. So he goes back to the same place he had left, so he picks up where he left off, which is near Beit El, the house of God. And there we are told he not only built an altar, because he had previously built an altar in, in Shechem, but it doesn't say when he came to Shechem, when he first enters the land, that he, built, that he calls out to God invokes God's name. He invokes God's name specifically in Beit El, and he invokes God's name again, and again builds an altar, um, or returns to the altar, I should say, but he again invokes the name of God by Kroshem Abram B'Shem Hashem. So one gets the impression that he was on a journey, he came into the land, he went to Beit El, then there was a detour, but he comes back to the same place. He sort of picks up where he left off, and one might get the impression that sort of history has been erased, that this unfortunate chapter is no longer 
part of Avram's journey, part of his story. One could get that impression, but in point of fact, I don't believe that's what the Chumash is saying at all. And I wanted to uh, look at that this morning, at least to begin with that, about sort of the effects of what has transpired in the land of Egypt. It's easy to say we're gonna start again, start afresh, but the past doesn't disappear. In the case of Avram, the path certainly does not disappear. And what's interesting, if we go back to the beginning now of chapter 13, after Avram is deported from Egypt, so we, the very first verse in chapter 13, Bayal, let's pick up with there. Bayal Avram mi Mitzrayim kubi ishto, echol ha-shelol, belot imo ha-negba. So Avram comes out of Egypt. When you go to Egypt, it's always in the Torah going down to Egypt. Or read at Mitzrayma. When you come out, come back to the land, it's always you're going up. So he comes up from Egypt. He and his wife, all, his, all that he possessed, and wrote with him uh, into the Negev. And here the verse is interesting because wrote suddenly, in other words, the order of the, the order of the different pieces of the verse is always important. Remember back in chapter 12, when we first encountered Lot, he's mentioned alone with Avram. And, and the next verse, it says, Avram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, and the possessions, and they saw they had literally made or acquired, etc. So in the first verse, Lot is alone. In the second verse, he's in second place after Sarah, the wife. But here in verse chapter 13, verse 1, Avram comes up from Egypt with his wife, all the possessions, and Lot. And the possessions are mentioned before Lot. One might even say, suggest, the possessions in the verse separate Avram from, from Lot. Which of course, if it's read that way, will anticipate what happens in chapter 13, because chapter 13 will be about, among other things, the separation of Avram from Lot. And what will cause the separation will be the possessions, the b'chush, as we will see. Hopefully we'll get there today. So chapter 13, verse number one, an interesting verse. It, um, again, the order is significant. One can ask the question, was Lot actually uh, with Avram in the land of Egypt? He's not mentioned, actually. That doesn't mean he wasn't there. Uh, in fact, from this verse, it would suggest perhaps he was there. He came up from Egypt together with his wife, possessions, and, and, and Lot. I mean, from a narrative standpoint, he's not in the story. He's not mentioned because the Torah is not interested in Lot in that respect. But uh, in any event, we have to keep Lot in mind because he was mentioned initially in chapter 12 alone with Avram, Avram 75. So the suggestion clearly is that he is a potential successor to Avram. Avram having been blessed, he'll be great, he'll be big make your name great, and you have a nation. So, but he has no successor. And now Lot seems to have dropped it off into last place over here, the Loti Mohanegma. We'll keep that in mind as we proceed through the chapter. The next verse, verse number two says, V'yavram kaved ma'od, Here they translate, Avram was very rich in cattle, silver, and gold. Now the word kaved, is a very interesting word. 
I mean, every word is interesting, but the word kaved in the context of what we've seen so far is very interesting because we were told back in chapter 12 that Avram went down to Egypt because there was a famine and the end of that verse was, ki kaved hara'av ba'aretz, the famine was heavy, was kaved. So Avram goes down to Egypt because the famine is kaved. He returns from Egypt, kaved ma'od, heavy. Here they translate rich, but the word literally means heavy. With cattle, with silver and gold. And now the question is, this verse, verse number two, is it simply stating a fact or is there a value judgment inherent in verse number two? Uh, typically, or often in the Torah, even when the Torah seems to be giving details necessary for a story, but the way the Torah presents it clearly is pointing us in certain directions. Avram kaved ma'ot. What does that mean in the context of what we've seen? So let me make a couple of uh, general observations about the word kaved. Number one, that the word kaved, which means heavy, is found in the story of the Exodus, the beginning of Sefer Shemot, I would say the first half of the book, which is the Exodus from Egypt. The word kaved is one of the key words in the entire story of the Exodus. Kaved lev paro. Paro's ha uh, heart is heavy. Moshe had complained, kvad peu, kvad I can't speak, I'm heavy of speech. Um, God had said to Moshe the purpose of uh, God's purpose in freeing the uh, Israelites from Egypt, among other things, uh, I will find glory in the destruction of Paro and Paro's uh, armies. So the word kavod, kaved, Paro said about the Hebrews in, Israel, in the land of Egypt, uh, uh, let the work be heavy upon them. When Moshe had asked for a, a journey into the desert to serve God, let the labor be placed upon them in a heavy way. So the word kaved, we might say, is in the book of Exodus, a word we identify strongly with the experience in the land of Egypt. And here, in the story that we have seen in chapter 12, is the precursor to the Israelites going to Mitzrayim, because the, the story here in chapter 12 is precisely parallel to the story later of the people, Yaakov's children and the people of Israel being in Egypt, suffering in Egypt, as basically it's the same story. You go down, there's a famine, you're persecuted, you're deported, there are plagues. It's the same story as the Ramban noted. So here it's the word Kavagan takes on a very interesting significance when read in the light of the story that it prefigures, which is the story of the Exodus. And I would say that if we ask ourselves the questions, what does it mean? What does it signify? Which is always obviously a critical question. It says to me that when Avram leaves the land of Egypt, he doesn't just leave the land of Egypt, he takes with him something from the land of Egypt. But that's precisely what happens in the story of the Exodus. As God has prophesied in 
chapter 15, that when you leave Egypt, says God, the people leave Egypt, in the book of Exodus, they will leave with many possessions. We're told in the book of Exodus that the Israelites left Egypt with possessions. Amongst the possessions were gold and silver. And we know that the gold they took from Egypt was initially instrumental in building a golden calf. Golden calf means these are, these, these are the gods of Israel who took you out of Egypt. It means is an Egypt connection. The story of the golden calf is about the inability of people to leave the past behind, to leave the negative side of the past behind. The fashioning of the golden calf from this gold taken from Egypt and the statement, these are the gods who took us out of Egypt, denies the Exodus that God took us out of Egypt. Over here, we have Avram being heavy, weighed down by Mekneh, by Kesef, and Vazaha. And this verse actually is very interesting. I know I say that all the time, but it's true. Because there's something curious about this little verse, verse number two. And that is that if you remember the previous chapter, it describes the gifts that Avram was given by Paro to Avram upon taking Sarai as, uh, from Avram. And the description, which is back in chapter 12, which is share that for a moment. Here it is in verse number 16 of chapter 12. It went well for Avram. From the word tov, it was good for him. In English, we have the same, we have good and we have goods. He's given goods, it would say. What are the goods he's given? Sonu bakar, chamorim, avadim, shvachot, atonot, ugmarim. So the list of goods that he's given mentions various animals. We could call that mikneh. And it also mentions slaves. It mentions male slaves and female slaves. Now we come back to Avaris in chapter 13, verse number two. And it says, He was heavy. So something's on the list and something's missing from the list. What is new is Kesef and Zahav. Because the previous chapter said nothing about Avram having Kesef or Zahav. Only over here is it mentioned. And what's also interesting, what's not mentioned, is Avadimush Fachot. It doesn't mention the slaves, the male and the female slaves. The Torah emphasized in chapter 12, not only male slaves, could have said Avadim but it emphasizes avadim ushvachot, and there's a reason for that we'll get to soon. So why in fact does, what do we make of the fact that in verse number two, it mentions kesef and zahav? Part of it is setting up the parallel to, to the Exodus story later, no doubt. But even here, there probably is a significance to kesef and zahav, and that is that kesef and zahav actually weighs you down. In other words, the word kaved, is that a neutral word? Is it a positive word? Is it a negative word? The word kaved could be seen as positive. Something which, something which is heavy means it's significant. What do you think of so-and-so? He's a real heavyweight, you say. He's an important person. So that person's just a, just a, 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 a lightweight. Lightweight's not, not important. 
So Kaved can be seen as something positive, but over here, I don't think it's positive because, not just because of the Egypt connection, but because Avram essentially is a person who's always traveling. And a traveler doesn't want to be weighed down. So the, 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 the animals and the uh, slaves, they don't weigh you down because they can all move. But what can weigh you down, literally as well as figuratively, is the kesef and the zav. To be weighed down, that's a problem. You don't want to travel too heavy and you don't want to travel too light. So the kaved ma'od over here, apart from the fact that he's taking this from Mitzrayim, the kesef and the zahav, suggests perhaps something negative about the kesef and the zahav and perhaps the mekneh as well. I'll get to what's negative about it in a moment. And what's interesting is, it doesn't mention abadim ushvachot. The Torah doesn't mention it in this verse. What happened to the abadim ushvachot? Because he was given abadim ushvachot as well. So here we come to, a, uh, to another set of verses that I believe are bound up with what we've seen here in this verse in chapter 13 and also in chapter 12. The word kaved, kaved means heavy. The opposite of kaved is the word kal, which is light. Kal and kaved. We have elsewhere in the Bible where the Torah plays with those two terms. It comes up in a very clear way in the book of Shmuel in more than one place, I would add. I don't want to get into that now, but I'll simply cite one verse. When the house of Ailey is going to be destroyed, the, the prophecy about the destruction of the house of Ailey in the second chapter of Shmuel, the prophet says to Ailey, I thought I would, I would choose you forever. I chose you in the land of Egypt. Your family was chosen in the land of Egypt. I thought you would be a priest before me forever, to walk before me forever. That's not going to happen. Those that honor me, I will honor, says God. And those who degrade me, who defame me, I will hold in light esteem. And here we have the contrast. On one hand, on the other. So here we have the word kaved. The Theron was kaved, Avram is kaved. But we do encounter the word kal in a very significant way, not in this chapter. But if we scroll ahead to chapter 16, there we come across the word, uh, the word cow. So let's see if we can get to chapter 16 here on this. Um, yes, this is 15. Yes, chapter 16, you see on the screen? Jump ahead for a moment. The Sarai Eshet Avram Hagar. So Sarah's wife had not borne him any children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Hagar will figure prominently, of course, in the story of in the narrative. But for our purposes right now, so Sarai goes to Avram and says to him, I can't have children. Take my, take my maid. Perhaps I will be built up through her. That's what literally Ibaneh. It does play on the word ben, which is a child or a son, but it means literally be built up. 
Vayishma Avram Mukol Sarai, and Avram heard, in this case, hearing means accepting. So Avram agrees. He heeds the request, he agrees. And then we're told that Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, Hagar HaMitzvit Shifchata, after 10 years, they had dwelt together in the land of Canaan, that's the next verse, and um, gives her to Avram as a, as a wife. And then, um, in verse number four, and now he went to literally cohabited with Hagar. And when she saw she was pregnant, she became pregnant right away, it sounds like. When she saw that she was pregnant, um, so here the reader jumps out of the proverbial seat. Here we have the word kal. She, namely Sarah, became light in the eyes of Hagar. That's verse number four. Now we have the next verse. Remarkable verse. Thomas Sarai Avram Sarai said to Avram, Chamosi. Chamas is literally wickedness. It's the reason the world was destroyed in the beginning and the story of Noah. It was filled with wickedness. The rabbinic understanding of Hamas typically is theft taking things by force. But literally, it means wickedness. So I said to Avram, the wickedness is on you. So she's not blaming Hagar. She indirectly blames Hagar, but Hamasi Olecha, it's on you. Anochi notati shifchati b'chekecha v'atera ki harata v'ekal b'yeneha. I gave you this, this maid, I handed it to you, and when she saw she had conceived, I became light in her eyes. And the reader expects Sarah to say, and therefore it's, it's, she's a terrible person, but that's not what she says. Yishbot Hashem may God judge between us, me and you. So she goes to Avram and she blames him in a very powerful statement. The wickedness is, the world was destroyed because of Hamas. The wickedness is on you. And again, she repeats that word, so I think the Torah is inviting us to uh, connect chapter 16 with chapters 12 and 13. And given the fact, which is actually very logical, given the fact that the woman about whom she is complaining is a slave, a shifcha, and so Shifcha Mitzrit, she's an Egyptian slave woman. Where would Avram get Egyptian slave women? Comes from the north. But we know the Torah says he was given Avadim Shvachot. The Torah went out of its way to say he was given not just male slaves, but female slaves. So presumably, Hagar HaMitzrit was one of the gifts given to Avram, Hitiv Bavura, in return for Sarah being taken. Now, I'm not suggesting that was his motive, but he's certainly thinking about the possibility that it will go well for me. He doesn't want it to be taken, but in fact, she was taken. And in fact, he endangered her because he went to Egypt. He's headed towards Egypt. And then as he's about to walk into Egypt, he, he asks her permission to say, you are my sister. 
So here we have the point, here the blame, presumably, and the anger, there's a real anger over here, is not just about this particular incident. It's about the history. You, not she treats me lightly, but you, you treat me lightly. You don't take me seriously. You treat me as someone of no importance. And that go, takes us back to Mitzrayim. So Avram may return to Beit El in chapter 13, but the past is not erased. In point of fact, here we have the Kal and the, and the Kaved. And then thinking about it more deeply, about the Kal and Kaved, the Kal and Kaved perfectly uh, reflect what's going on in chapters 12 and 13 from Sarah's standpoint, which is that Avram, to build a nation, to be big, as he's told, and make you big, uh, you will have a, a, a nation, right? And what he needs is two things. He needs the resources to build a nation, but he also needs uh, someone to succeed him because he's 75 years old. And what happens in the story, again, not that that was his hope or even intention, but uh, at the end of the day, she's taken. And in reward for her being taken, Avram gets many gifts, including gold and silver. At the end of the day, he becomes Kaved. He's a heavyweight now. But what happened to Sarah? So Sarah says nothing in chapter 12. But now in chapter 16, she explodes. The wickedness is upon you. And actually, the word Hamas is interesting because if we think of it in the terms of the what happens in just before the flood, there's a description of B'nai Elohim who are taking the B'not Adam. They see that they're good and they take without consent whatever they want. And as we pointed out in previous sessions, that's precisely what Paro does in chapter 12. So actually the, the accusation is a very appropriate one. Because in effect, what she's saying is, you set me up, which is true. You set me up to be the object of someone's Hamas, that is to take by force. So it's a very pointed accusation, and it's a very clear accusation, and it's a very true accusation. May God judge between us. Those are fighting words. We need God to judge between us. It's like a court case. God should determine who is right and who is wrong. Now, Avram's response in chapter 16, which we can't get into now, that's a very problematic response because what Avram said in chapter 16, Avram says, um, Avram said to Sarai, here's your slave, she's still your shifra, do whatever is good in your eyes, do what do batobi enayich. And what Sarah does, giving carte blanche, is vataneo sarai vativrachmi poneha. So Avram, one might say, will be looking in depth at chapter 16, which we're not right now. We're looking at 16 only in light of 12 and 13 right now, but at the end of the day, how does one read Avram's statement, do whatever you want? Do whatever you want. 
be read any number of ways. I prefer to read it, do whatever you want is a way of not taking responsibility. And do Hatov, interesting is Hatov be a Nayich, what's ever good in your eyes, Fataneha Sarai, and Sarai afflicted her. We'll get back to that very important verse uh, when we get to chapter 16. But in effect, this is the actual, the, the, the ground, I would say, for the whole Yishmael story, the failure of Avram to take responsibility and Sarah's misbehavior, because Inui clearly in the Bible is a very negative thing. So we have here the uh, setup in terms of the story of Yishmael and the failure of Yishmael to be Avram's successor can, has its roots not only in chapter 16, but in effect, in the, way the, in the way this all transpires, beginning in chapters 12 and chapter 13. So coming back to our verse, the Avram kaved ma'od to sum up what we have so far, and then I'll stop and take comments or questions. Um, the point I've been making is that, number one, that the Kaveh ties us here, and certainly in the book of Exodus to Mitzrayim. He comes out of Egypt, but he hasn't left the experience of Egypt behind. And the experience of Egypt is about the, the, what he takes from Egypt, which is negative, but it's also probably primarily about the experience of Sarah in the land of Egypt. And that was the question that we raised, that the medievals raised. How do we evaluate Avram's behavior in Mitzrayim? We have the Ran in Drashot Ran who tries to give an apologetic. And we have the Ramban who calls Avram both in terms of going there in the first place and mistreatment of Sarah. That's their opinion, which is fine. But the person, the interpreter of the event, who's a much better interpreter than either the Ramban or the Ran put together, is none other than Sarah. She has her interpretation. And it's two words, chamasi alrecha. So let's stop here for a moment. And if anybody has comments or questions or something in the chat, I'd be happy to uh, try to respond. And then we'll continue. I would like to say two things. Go ahead. And number one, it's interesting when the same story is repeating itself with its heart, it does not say he covered our Av Ba'aretz. Everything else is parallel, but this is skipped. Okay, we, will, we will get, we'll get to Yitzchak when we get there. Uh, we have only so far looked at the two sister stories. We have not done the third sister story. And the third sister story is extremely interesting and in just of casting a light. Your point is well taken. Uh, I wouldn't say everything else is parallel. The stories are parallel. That's no, I mean, point. just these verbs, vayi, vayelech. Yes, 100%, right. What else? And what else I wanted to ask you, assuming that uh, the stories in the Abraham cycle, which we have here, is a small sample of the many stories the Israelites okay. had about their founding fathers. Mm -hmm. And just few of them were uh, selected to be in the Torah. Yes. So why is this kind of story so important that not even does it included, but it's repeated? What, what, what because, is it about? Okay. So, so because, because we have, because, first of all, I, have, I, have, I, I totally agree with you that there probably were many, many other stories about these people and that the Torah has, uh, 
essentially focused in on only certain stories. It's not giving us a full history of any of these characters. And the question that we have to ask is, and this is a basic question, what is the story actually about? In other words, it's not the times in the life and times of Abra. The Torah has an agenda. The storyteller has a particular agenda. And we will be dealing with this over the course of weeks because this, in my way of thinking, is what is, when we study a text, a biblical text, the question to ask is, and which I try to do in my teaching, what is it actually about? What is central to the story? What is the agenda of the story, whether it's the stories in the Breshit, Shmuel is another wonderful example. At its core, it can branch out in a hundred directions and the great books branch out in so many directions with so many nuances to it. But the question is always, what is central? In the case of Avram, I would argue, and we'll see this, that the one of the core questions is, and the core question, not just of the Abraham narrative, but the core question of Genesis in general is, we have a covenant which is set up with, with Abraham. It's about Abraham and his descendants. And the question is, once we determine what the covenant is, how does the covenant, how is the covenant passed on from generation to generation? And the difficulties in transmitting a blessing and transmitting a covenant. That's what this book is largely about. It's embedded in the creation narrative. So we have a situation of Avram, great father. The great father has no children. That is to say, he has no obvious successor. So the question of succession is central. And the question of succession raises a question, succession of, of, of which person? Is it just about Abraham? Is it about Abraham and his successor? Or is it about Abraham and his wife and their successor? And that is a very central question because it's clear in this book that whereas it is a patriarchal book, there's no doubt, but the women play a, a central role in determining how the blessing is passed on, whether it's Sarah, whether it's Rebecca, those two women for sure, and even Rachel and Leah figure as well in this in the story in a different way. But Rivka is the one who understands perfectly how the blessing is to be transferred. And Yitzchak left to his own devices, and I think Avram left to his devices, would choose the wrong person. So the role of the, the, the role of the, the partner in the story, in the case of Avram Sarah, Sarai Sarah, in the case of Yitzchak Rivka is very central. So that's why these stories are so important, both in the case of Avram and Yitzchak, because it really is the Torah is trying to uh, to lay to focus in on how the family is going to be built. It's a book about family. How is this family built? What are the tensions, conflicts, etc. And how can they be resolved? How, how are they resolved? Uh, well, perhaps not fully, but how are they resolved in the, in, the, in the Genesis narrative? Whether it's Abraham to Isaac, whether it's Isaac to, to Yaakov, whether it's Yaakov to all of his sons, uh, those are the tensions. So that's the reason I think primarily there's such a focus on the sister stories. And it's a book about family and, part of, and the incredibly, and the complex relationships. That's what I would say for now, but we'll encounter this throughout all the classes. Does anybody else have something to say? Could I share a comment? Uh, yes. It would seem uh, from the human perspective, uh, Avram and Sarah were half, half siblings. And 
it seems that he's regarded Sarah more as a friend and less as uh, some kind of romance or spouse. I can't help but wonder if if Hashem hadn't interfered in Mitzrayim, if Avram would have been heartbroken if Pharaoh kept Sarah. Um, right. Well, let's put it this way. First of all, as we saw last week, he basically says it explicitly. When Avimelech says to him, why did you say it's your sister? It's actually your wife. His second response is, she really is my sister. That's what he says. He says it straight up. You don't have to speculate. I see her primarily as a sister. You love your sister. But she doesn't share your destiny. I, yes, I took her as a wife. That's how he sees her, at least by the time chapter 20 comes. Now, it changes later on, no question. But that's one of the questions. How does he see her? Remember, when he prays for a child in chapter 15, he doesn't pray for us. He prays for himself. He prays for the whole world, Abram. He doesn't pray for his wife. So we'll steal this later on. We don't have to, here we don't have to speculate. Here it's, I think it's, he says it. He says it straight up. She is my sister. That's how he sees her. And it's very hard when you see somebody in a certain way, it's very hard to change the way you think about them, which is just human nature. So, but to come back to the point about, to Sarah's point about Sarah, Dr. Sarah in the class. Yes, I think what is, I have a what I like to think I try to do in my teaching is to focus in on what is essential. What is the story actually about? That's not to say, without being reductive, because it's about many shades, it's many shades of gray and it's, and it's, and it's nuanced and it's very complex. But at the core, the question is, what is, this, what is the primary question or questions the book is dealing with in the particular narrative? In the Avram, it's about succession. It's about covenantal succession. We'll see this throughout our, our study. Okay, let me now, let's continue. So, so far we Are you have- Are still taking questions or no? Yes. I have a question. Go ahead. Wendy Baker. Um, yeah. the, could we look at this whole episode of what we might call God's postponing Sarah's pregnancy to being some kind of punishment for his having gone down to Egypt in the first place. That this kind of issue of introducing Hagar and Hagar's pregnancy and Sarah then being upset at her being pregnant even though she'd set it up was somehow all part of a, a, a giant punishment to Abraham for having done that. I, I don't read it as punishment. Um, first of all, I don't think she's upset it's that she's pregnant. It, perhaps. Just, just one second. Let me let me just say two things. I think Sarah's not upset that Hagar's pregnant. Sarah wants Hagar to get pregnant. Yeah. What Sarah's upset about, and what, what's critical to the story, we'll encounter this later, is her plan. She says it straight up. I would be built up through her. She anticipates that I give my servant mm -hmm. to you. And the child that is born will be our child, kind of surrogate motherhood. Ibane, I will be built. Ibane, I play on the word bain. But what, what, what backfires, and the reason it doesn't work, is because when Hagar is belittling Sarah, what Sarah comes to understand is that her plan of sharing the child, that it's my child as well, is not what Hagar is thinking. She's not thinking that she's getting pregnant so that Sarah can be a, a, a parent. She's not thinking in terms of Sarah. And what Sarah says to Avram is that the dog looks like its master. That if she belittles me, you belittle me. 
If you respected me, she would respect me. You don't respect me. In fact, you mistreat me. And it takes us back to Mitzrayim. She hasn't forgotten Mitzrayim. He may want to forget Mitzrayim and think you forget about it. She has remembers it very clearly. And those are the, those things that happen are not forgotten. And you have to, you would try to work those problems out. Sometimes you don't work them out. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to work them out. Um, so that's, I think, the, the point of the story. It's not that, the second point is, I don't see it as so much a punishment. I think it's something else, which is that you have to remember the book of Breshit is about a covenant. It's about a particular kind of covenant. The covenant, the covenant plays out over four generations, 400 years. And the first three generations, we'll get to this in chapter 15, the first three generations suffer with, with affliction, with slavery, with being marginalized, Geirut, Abdut, and Inuit. In other words, the covenantal people in Genesis and the main covenantal person in Genesis and probably the main character in the book probably is Jacob, who is Israel. We have to remember that Jacob, who, who gets the blessing from his father, uh, Jacob says about his own life, we don't have to speculate. When Pharaoh says, how old are you? And Jacob answers him, not as old as you think. I had a short life and a bad life. He says, my life has been short and bad. Now, I haven't lived as long as my ancestors and it's been bad. And Jacob says it straight up. I have suffered my entire life, which is true when you read the story of Jacob. And he is the covenantal person in Genesis because he sets up the future. And the covenant means a willingness, if you are covenantal, means a willingness to sacrifice for the, for, 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 for the sake of building up something that you will not be directly a part of. So living the sacrificial life, he is the hero, he, he is Israel. That's what we aspire to, to live the sacrificial life. Most people would say, I don't want that. I don't want to suffer my whole life so that maybe in the future, someone's going to benefit. But that is what the Torah demands. That's, that's the nature of the covenant in Breshit. It's very powerful. Yeah, so the deferring of the women who, 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 who don't have children initially. And Leah says it about herself, I suffer. The idea of, of, of delayed blessing is something which is central to Genesis. So I see the, the, the matriarchs, the delay in having children, the difficulty as so part of the covenantal, as reflecting a, a, a sort of idea, of, a, an idea of the covenant that emerges from the book of Genesis. I don't see it primarily as a punishment. So I would say those two things in terms of your comment. And Okay, anybody else? Would you, would you take yes. one more comment? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I'm remembering later on when, when Abraham, you know, with the battle of the four kings and the five kings, and he, you know, has every right, you know, as a victor to take booty. And he specifically says, no, I don't want your booty. I don't want anyone to say that I benefited from you, right? That's so right. he has the ability to say that in the right circumstance. Right. I'm kind of appalled that he doesn't say that when like, you know, you got this booty, because not because you won a war even, because you pipped out your wife. I mean, I'm appalled. Right, so your point is well taken. There's clearly a connection between those two. Uh, that is a very important point. We'll, we'll, we'll mention that we get to chapter 14. 
why is it that in chapter 14, he says to the king of Sodom, I'm not even taking a stroke now, not even a shoelace. So you shouldn't say I made Abram rich, but he is willing to uh, take, and now he's willing to take, but he um, suggests from the very beginning that it might go well for me. He's thinking in that context of possible possessions, whereas in chapter, 50, uh, chapter 14, he rejects it. Your point is very well taken. And it is striking that in one case he accepts it, uh, and you know he leaves the land with, with great with wealth. Avram kaved mod. In the second instance, he does not take it. One could see it as a change of heart, a kind of tshuva, if you wish. But we'll, but your point is, I mean, point is is a good point, and we will perhaps deal with it when we get to chapter fourteen. We're a long way from the end of chapter fourteen. So we're gonna, we just continue every week and we'll probably be continuing into the spring with this because there's so much here. Uh, anyway, okay, let's get back now to- um, One question. So why is uh, Shivcha omitted in, the, in this course? Why, why is what? Why is the Shivcha omitted? Uh, the slaves, why are the slaves omitted in this course? question you asked originally. Yeah, I think that, I, by, well, I didn't, I, why there's so much omitted here, I don't, I mentioned earlier, and my point is that I think I would say they're omitted here. So you should ask the question why they're omitted. And you wonder why they're omitted. And then you get to chapter 16, you realize they hardly been omitted. Quite the opposite is true. There's a focus on the slaves. The slaves are taken, slaves are not just another possession. The slaves are not, the issue with Hagar is not a possession. The issue with Hagar has to do with she becomes a member of the family, and the question becomes how she fits or doesn't fit into the family. So I was suggesting that the omission of the slaves in verse number three or four, the Avram Kaved Ma'od, is to allow the reader to think about this question and then to uh, be happily surprised when in chapter 16, Hagar becomes, the Egyptian slave becomes a central figure in the uh, in the uh, in the in the narrative, that was my point. Okay, let us continue now. Rabbi Silver, we had yes. uh, we had one we had one more question in the, in the chat, yep. um, which was whether there's an implication um, as part of this narrative that after going to Egypt, there's some kind of estrangement between Avram and Sarah, which might be another explanation for why she doesn't have children. I don't see that. Uh, I don't think so. I think they, I, I, they're not having children is what I think mentioned earlier. Um, well, the estrangement, <laughs> clearly when you read chapter 16, there's a, there's a deep anger. I mean, the language is very powerful. You know, there's no other way. I mean, and you know, it's may God judge between us. It can't be more stronger than that. The Torah doesn't, you know, doesn't camouflage it. It's very, it's very straight. I mean, so yes, in retrospect, you realize the she, she. It's one thing to put up with this business, but it's quite another when she thinks you are continuing in the same line of thinking. I understood there was a famine. Okay, I went along with it, but now I realize that it's a reflection of how you see me, and that that's unacceptable to me. The, the, the question that we have raised implicitly, maybe explicitly earlier which you have in the beginning of chapter 13. And that is, he came up from Egypt with Sarah and the possessions and Lot. And the question here is, 
throughout what is the relationship between his view towards possessions and his view towards people. I mean, where, where do you put the value? Where, where does the, what value do you place upon the Rechush? And when you read the story, actually, that's an, that's an ongoing question. We'll see what Avram, how it plays out both in 12 and 13, and especially in chapter 14. Now we'll, we'll, we'll come to this in chapter 14 as well. So we'll leave that in abeyance for now. Um, okay, so let's, let's continue. We have a few more minutes. Let's continue with chapter 13. Let's get back to 13 now. Going back to 13. And um, yeah. So now we have the following. So they're traveling in chapter 13. Lot is with him. And Avram goes back to the same place. And now we have verse number five. Lot, who accompanied and went with Avram, he also had flocks and herds and tents. They could not, the land could not support them staying together. Why not? The Rechush, they had a lot of possessions. It's a very interesting verse for several reasons, actually. But one point I would make immediately is this that what separates Lot at this point in time is the only potential heir to, to, to Avram. There is no other potential heir on, on the scene right now. But notice how the verse emphasizes what they can't be together. The verse starts with They can't be together. And the verse ends so we have A in the beginning and A at the end. They can't be yachdav. And the reason is the middle. The reason is the rechush. So the very rechush, one might say, Avram leaves Mitzrayim. He went into the land with rechush. But when he leaves, he has a lot more. He has, he has mikneh, he has kesef, he has ahav, he has avadim and shvachot. And this rechush, in the short term, it turns out, is what separates Avram from Lot. In the, in the first verse, we saw Lot was ready at the end of the verse, preceded by the Rechush. And now we're told that the Rechush is going to divide Avram from Lot. And the word Yachdav is very striking because thinking about the Avram narrative, we all, of course, remember the verses in chapter 22, which appears twice there. So there, the potential heir, the presumed heir to Avram, of course, at the Akedah, the Torah raises the question how it's going to work out. But at the end of the day, Yitzchok is Avram's successor. And there, the key word is Yachdav. But over here, the potential successor is going to be removed from the scene. And ironically, it's the very Rechush, which Avram needs, presumably, to build the empire. But it's the very rechush which will end up separating them. And it's interesting to note, as we look a little more in the chapter, how this how this plays out. The Torah tells us how this plays out. There was a, 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 a disagreement, a quarrel between the shepherds of Avram and, and Lot's shepherds. 
And at that point, the Knani and the Prizi possessed the land. Leave that, leave that out for now. Why does the Torah mention the Knani and the Prizi? Leave that out for now. But meanwhile, let there not be a quarrel between us or our shepherds. Literally, we're brothers, we're kinsmen, they translate. The land is before you. He separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. So here it's actually interesting. I want just to reflect on this for a moment. It's not what you would expect. Two people are together, Lot accompanies Avram on the journey, and there's a quarrel between the shepherds. It doesn't even say there's a quarrel between them. And Avram's instinct is to say separate. Separate, and this is your potential heir at this point, separate. So what's interesting is, so what is that about, separate? The whole land is before you, let's just separate. You go one way, I'll go the other way. And we're told that Lot looks up, and we'll get to this next week, he sees Kikar Yardain, the Jordan Plain, very fertile, etc. And it says in verse number 11, says Lot chooses the plain of the Jordan. He travels eastward and they separated from each one from his brother. Avram Yashav Biaretz Canaan, Avram dwelt in the land of Canaan, Velot Yashav Biarekikar, Vayahad Sodom, Lot settled in the cities of the plain, pitching his tent near Sodom. So, what is this about over here? And here we come to a very important point about the Avram narrative in general. Lot is an important player in the story. Lot is one of the, the Abraham foils. The, the Abraham narrative has two foils two characters that are similar on one hand, but importantly different on, in, in other ways. One of them is Lot, the potential successor. Lot chooses to go east. Now what's interesting is Avram didn't tell him to go east. What Avram says is to go right and left. Right and left in biblical Hebrew only means one thing. Right and left in Hebrew, right is south and left is north. Because in biblical Hebrew, you, your, back is to the, your, your back is to the west. In front of you is Kedem, it's before you. And if you're facing east, then of course, standing in the west facing the east, your right is south and your left is north. Binyamin, Benjamin, son of the south, says Rashi, son of the south, because he's the only child that was born in the land of Israel. He wasn't born in the north, in Aram. So he's the son of the south. Now the difference between north, south, and east is this. East in the book of Genesis means you're outside the land, east of Eden, outside the sacred place. Avram does not tell Lot to leave the sacred space. He tells him to go north or south. Stay inside the land, is what he's saying, but we must be separate. But Lot himself actually chooses to leave the land, as is evidence from verse number 12. Avram Yashav Biaretz Kenan, 
Avram dwelt in the land of Canaan, but, but Lot dwelt in the Areha Kikar in Sodom, which in this verse seems to be uh, in, in contrast to the Eretz Canaan. So Lot has chosen to leave. Let me make one point about these verses, and we'll have to continue with this uh, next week. I want to one, one last comment after, after this, and that is that Avram says to Lot, we shouldn't fight. We are brothers. Now that sounds like a very lovely statement, which it is, but the word achim carries with it different meanings in the Bible and in the Torah. An ach can be a relative. Often in the Torah, achicha doesn't mean your literal brother. It means another person, maybe another Jew. But the word ach can also mean literally a brother. Now, in point of Lot, actually, we are told explicitly who Lot is. He is Abraham's nephew. He's the son of Abraham's deceased brother, Ben Achiv, Lot Ben Achiv. So when Avram says brother, you have to wonder whether the word brother is in fact uh, to be taken just as a relative, kinsman, or whether brother carries with it a different connotation, which is brother as opposed to nephew. And what makes that very important is, because we have already seen, and we'll see again, that when it comes to Sarah, he calls her my sister. It's interesting, by the way, that in rabbinic tradition, and it could even be the chat, that Lot and Sarah are actually brother and sister. If Yiska is Sarah, then Sarah and Lot are brother and sister, and actually makes it even more striking that he calls Lot a brother. Now, what is the difference between a brother and a, and a Benochib and a nephew? All the difference in the world, because a brother is a peer. A brother is not a successor. A nephew, and especially in the Torah, is a potential successor. It's like a, it's like a son. So when Avram says to Lot, we are brothers, he's already anticipating, whether consciously or unconsciously, the fact that Lot will not be Avram's successor. Another question one can ask is, what is he actually? Is he a brother or is he a nephew? And I would say that what the Torah is setting up over here, at least a, a, a potential reading, is that it depends how you measure it. If you measure it in terms of family, he's Abraham's brother's son. He's a nephew. But the way the chapter begins is, Lot also has possessions. If you measure it by the bank accounts, he's a brother. If you measure it by the family, he's a successor. And the point over here, to reemphasize what I said earlier, when you measure things in terms of Ruchush, that leads you not just to a to the split up of Lot from Avram, but it also leads to something else. If that's the way you measure things, then what Avram says is, listen, you have shepherds, I have shepherds. You have possessions, I have possessions. We're brothers. Why should brothers fight? Separate from me. But separate from me is very strange coming from someone who, whether he fully recognizes it or not, is in desperate need of some kind of successor. He will recognize this later. So what the Torah is setting up over here, I think, the full implications of the Ruchush come into play in chapter 13. 
And that is the Rechush will separate them in more than one way. The Rechush causes a fight because people fight over possessions. But the Rechush also emphasizes the way you see things. And um, I think that is a very important piece of what the story is about. And next week we'll start with Lot because Lot in many ways is very similar to, to, to Avram. Similar, and because he's so similar, the Torah wants us to focus in on the important differences between Lot and, uh, and Avram. I just will stop at this point. Um, I just want to say one thing, which I usually don't do this in any of my sessions. I'll speak for myself. I, this last week, I found to be an extraordinarily difficult week. <laughs> I remember, I don't remember any election in my life that I was following in this way. I was up a lot of the night, very concerned about what's going to happen. And I was thinking about, as I mentioned before, you know, we studied together. And what I try to do in my teaching uh, is to, apart from looking carefully at the text, is always to think about the bigger picture. What is this really about? What is central to the story? What is core to the story? And this week I was thinking about a different question. I was born here in the uh, United States. My parents were born in the United States. My grandmother came in 1884. New Yorkers all the way. I love this country. It's a, it's a, uh, experiment in a, in a way of governing in, in democracy. What is core to this country? And I remember as a kid, my mother would take me when she voted. She would take me with me to the voting booth. It was a sacred obligation to vote. And the idea that people can make a decision about who will lead us, who will govern us, is something that is central to my way of thinking. And when someone begins to question that, that person renders himself whatever you thought about him beforehand. I didn't think much of him to begin with, but it doesn't matter. As morally unfit to lead. And actually, I felt this week that something very important is, is in deep danger, which is democracy, which is a way of living and choosing and the freedom of people to make choices. So I found this week to be a frightening week. Hopefully it will be resolve itself in, in a good way. But it was a good opportunity, I think, to, for all of us to reflect on what is really central, what is really important in the way we conduct ourselves, our lives, our, 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 our society. And I don't know about you, but <laughs> I had sleepless nights this week in, in worrying, and I'm still concerned about this and about this experiment in democracy in the country in which, uh, you know, which I grew up, probably many of us lived their whole entire lives here. And I'm grateful for that, for that opportunity to live here. Not that we don't have many problems, but in any event, to think about what is essential. And that relates to, as I said before, to the way we learn as well. Always, what, is the, what, what are these texts trying to teach us? That's the core, with all the, with all the cleverness aside. I'm very proud of the cleverness. Don't, don't get me wrong, I will say that. But beyond the cleverness, what is it actually about at its core? That's where we come together to learn and to try to figure this out and to think together. What are these texts trying to teach us? In what direction are they trying to move us? I'll stop you. I usually don't talk this way, but I felt it's uh, 
say Dvarim Ayotzi Min something that I feel so strongly about, and I felt uh, had to say something about it. So I look forward to uh, continuing to learn next week. We'll continue with the story, and if anybody has questions, they can send me an email. I'll try to respond. Uh, and thank you very much. Thank you for sharing, Rabbi Silver. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi.